Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future and in my opinion, and I know Anthony shares this opinion as well, there's no topic more important today than talking about vaccines and public health. And we're very excited today to welcome Professor Peter J. Hotez onto SALT Talks uh, to talk about these issues. Uh, Dr. Hotez is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine in Waco, Texas. Dr. Hotez is an internationally recognized physician scientist in neglected tropical diseases and vaccine development. As head of the Texas Children's CVD, he leads a team and product development partnership for developing new vaccines for diseases affecting hundreds of millions of children and adults worldwide. In 2006, at the Clinton Global Initiative, he co-founded the Global Network for Neglected Tropical Diseases to provide access to essential medicines for hundreds of millions of people. He obtained his undergraduate degree in molecular biophysics from Yale University in 1980, followed by a PhD degree in biochemistry from Rockefeller University in 1986, and a medical degree from Weill Cornell College, Medical College uh, in 1987. In 2014 to 2016, Dr. Hotez served in the Obama administration as US envoy focusing on vaccine diplomacy initiatives between the US government and countries in the Middle East and North Africa. In 2018, he was appointed by the US State Department to serve on the Board of Governors for the U.S.-Israel Binational Science Foundation. And he's frequently called upon to testify before U.S. Congress and also in major uh, media outlets. He's also going sort of off script here. He's been called the OG villain by people in the anti-vaccine movement, including Robert Kennedy Jr., who's sort of the face of a lot of that movement. So that's a huge badge of honor uh, for Dr. Hotez to get that distinction within that community because it means he's spreading truth and, and sort of uh, one of the people that's evangelizing truth around the need to get vaccines, especially for something like COVID-19 that has ravaged uh, so much of the United States as well as the world. But it's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Hotez. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Uh, he's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony. For the interview, Anthony's not a doctor, but I know he has a lot of uh, very important things to say about Dr. the Dr. Hotez, he starts in every day. Every day he's got a little wise Alec remark, but Trust me, as we get towards September and it's bonus season, I look taller and thinner to Mr. Darcy. Okay, so just so you know. So I well, I, he gave I, me a very generous introduction. Uh, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but it is a great introduction. <laughs> yeah, I well, couldn't listen, condense it was, that it was bio. Well, now I'm, I'm doing your book. A, I'm doing your book a disservice, sir, which I apologize for because I ha I've read it on my Kindle. Uh, but what we'll do is obviously we'll post it up for people and we'll put it up on our social media, but. The book is about vaccine diplomacy in a time of anti-science. And I think the book is absolutely fascinating on a number of different levels because we're in the age of disinformation, sir, as you clearly point out in the book. And we're in an age where I would have thought, as you and I were roughly contemporaries, I would have thought at this point in our lives, science would have mattered more. Uh, but it feels like we went instead of into the 21st century we're sort of back in the 17th or 18th century, even skipping the 19th century. So, so my question to you, sir, why did you write the book? 
What can our uh, viewers and listeners learn from purchasing the book, which I strongly recommend that they do? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Anthony. You know, we're we're in this bizarre period of, of what I call anti-science. It's almost it's be, and it's globalized. It's become its own empire, which we'll talk about more. But the reason I wrote the book was uh, from my time as U.S. science envoy um, in the Obama administration. I was there in the Middle East and North Africa at a very difficult time, uh, 2015, end of 2014, 2015, 2016. It was during the Syrian conflict, the civil war, the ISIS occupation, the proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians were, was starting in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula had destabilized. And I saw how war and political collapse was bringing back uh, vaccine preventable diseases, neglected tropical diseases like Leishmaniasis, this huge rise in, in Aleppo. And while everyone was focused on the geopolitical consequences, what I saw was a massive eruption of disease and also noted how we were seeing this in Venezuela with the Maduro regime and in Central Africa and the in the Boko Haram areas in, in northern Nigeria. And then even what was happening on Texas and the Gulf Coast and realized that the kinds of forces that were bringing back diseases were things that as an MD and a PhD physician scientist, I was never trained to think about poverty, war, political collapse, climate change, anti-vaccine, anti-science movements. And, and yet these were the disease drivers and all that, that book was finished about a year before COVID-19 uh, erupted so that COVID-19 was in some ways I see it as a culminating event rather than something extraordinary. This was all predicted and predictable based on the, uh, the huge unraveling that we're seeing. So I want to, I want to, I want to ask you about the moment. Was there an epiphany? Uh, you're obviously a medical doctor, university professor. Uh, you've had this uh, work as a political public servant for our country. Thank you for that. But was there a moment, was there an epiphany where you were like, oh my God, there's a tremendous amount of disinformation out there. And that disinformation is in a, in a prairie fire situation growing at a time when we don't need that, frankly. We need scientific fact on the ground and data. When did that happen, sir? Well, I've had multiple epiphanies, but the the latest one, and for me, the most horrifying was when I saw the anti-science uh, COVID disinformation campaign come out of the White House about a year ago at this time. Uh, and, you know, going up against anti-vaccine groups for years, because I have a daughter with autism and uh, I have four adult kids, and I have a daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities and wrote a book about it called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism to debunk all of the fake claims that vaccines cause autism from the anti-vaccine lobby and what autism is. And, and so I became by default an expert in anti-science disinformation campaigns. And then I saw it happening in front of my eyes, going on CNN and MSNBC, listening to the stuff coming out of the White House. And, and of course, it came out of President Trump, but it was Peter Navarro and Larry Kudlow and, and this guy Meadows and even the white, even Kaylee um, McEnany, the White House press secretary, I said, you know what? I know what this is. I've, I've seen this before. This is, this is not just a one-off thing. This is a deliberate anti-science disinformation campaign and called it out as such. And, and I was one of the first to call it out, not because I was so brilliant. It's just that I had decades of experience going up against these groups and it was coordinated and it was really scary. And that was a tough time for me because 
you know, as a scientist, you're always told just stick with the science. You're not an expert on politics. Don't try to become a political expert. But in order to tear apart the uh, anti-science from what was being said, you know, you had to call it out. And that was a that was a very dark period for me. Let's say that we're speaking today to anti-vaxxers. Uh, they, we've got hundreds of them, millions of them plugged into this, and they, we, we're trying to move them. What would you say to anti-vaxxers? And by the way, I'm going to point out something to you, which is astonishing to me. I have uh, high school teachers that are friends of mine, uh, elementary school teachers, very smart, educated people. They won't get vaccines. They they absolutely think that the coronavirus vaccine is going to do something to genetically mutate them. Uh, and so what would you say to these people? How how do you reach these people, sir? Is there a way to change their hearts and minds? Well, one of the things that I point out is, and thanks for the question, is that this is no longer a fringe group. Anti-science, anti-vaccine sentiments, activities are now mainstream in American public life. And, and although it started around vaccines causing autism, about six, seven years ago, it in order to re-energize, because in part because I had been debunking all the fake autism links, in order to re-energize, it found a way to glom itself onto the Republican Tea Party here in Texas and Oklahoma. And that re-energized it. They started forming political action committees. They started getting a lot of money from Tea, tea Party donor support. And, um, and then it glommed on in 2020 protests against masks and social distancing, it became this full on anti-science movement that, and you saw it happen uh, in, in the last summer, you saw how the virus accelerated through the Southern states, um, mostly red states, and then into the central uh, upper Midwest, all because people showed their political allegiance by defying masks and social distancing. And, and now we've got multiple surveys, including uh, one of ours that we did with Texas A&M, and then one that uh, the, the most recent one, PBS NewsHour, finds that, quote, white Republicans are now the leading anti-vaccine or most vaccine-hesitant group. And it all began about six, seven years ago uh, with under this banner of health freedom, medical freedom. And it's it's now become mainstream. And this is this is a huge issue. And so trying to combat the disinformation is, is not easy because it dominates the internet. There are more than 480 fake anti-vaccine websites all revved up on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter. If you go to amazon.com and look on, look up books on vaccination, they're almost all fake anti-vaccine books and COVID conspiracy books. So Amazon is the single largest promoter of vaccine uh, d disinformation. And then, of course, as if that weren't complicated enough, you've got now the export of this to Western Europe. You had anti-mask, anti-vaccine uh, rallies in London and Berlin and Paris. In Berlin, they tried to storm the Reichstag, where it was reported it was linked to QAnon. And, and then if that were not complicated enough, then you've got what U.S. and British intelligence report is a systematic program of weaponized health communication. That's the term they use coming out of Putin's Russian government. So this is a mainstream movement now. And it's as big a threat, I think, to our country as anything that we build infrastructure to combat, like nuclear proliferation or terrorism. I think it's reached that level. You know, in, in the end, what killed 530, 540,000 Americans was not only the SARS coronavirus, it was the SARS coronavirus aided and abetted by this anti 
science movement. And there's some new numbers saying that a majority of the deaths in COVID-19 in the U.S. were, were because of this. So this is, this is a crisis. 30, 35,000 people are dead in Florida. Uh, yet Governor DeSantis is out there uh, championing his economic policies and his policies towards handling the virus. And as you know, many people find his decisions to be quite popular. What's your, uh, as a scientist, what's your view of that? Well, you know, he's he's done everything he can to encourage this kind of fake health freedom uh, sentiment and attitudes. And he most recently held a press conference where he brought in Scott Atlas, I'm sure he's someone you've you've met before, and yes, no, I know and, Scott, and and all of these, all of this great Barrington nonsense that came comes out of the American Institute for Economic Research, and and now it's got it quote its own intellectual underpinnings, even though it's highly flawed, and and uh, but but it has the veneer of, of a serious, uh, a well intellectually thought out program. And again, it's uh, with the B117 variant here, this is not a time to mess around. This is, we know that variant is much more contagious than anything we've seen. Higher mortality, new paper came out in Nature magazine last week. So this is, uh, this, the, the, and, the and you know, we're not, we're not far away. We, we still can, I think we can vaccinate our way out of this. We just have to minimize loss of life between now and then. But the current vaccines on the market right now are somewhat protective of that variant. Is that fair to say, or they just that's, that? That's right. So it yeah, looks okay. as though all of the Operation Warp Speed vaccines, which by the way is another terrible name, is um, are are not only protective against the original lineages, but against the B one one seven variant, which is going to be the dominant one out in the foreseeable future. That's the one that came out of England. And what's more, Anthony, which is really exciting now, studies out of Israel. In Scotland, or showed the vaccines are not only stopping symptomatic and uh, illness, which is what we knew from the phase three clinical trials last year, but now we know it's actually stopping documented infection, meaning PCR positivity. And what that means is the vaccines are stopping virus shedding from the nose and mouth. It means that um, we're going to it's stopping asymptomatic transmission. So that uh, I'm pretty confident now, if we can vaccinate most of the American people we can actually vaccinate our way out of this epidemic. We can actually halt virus transmission and get back to something that resembles something very normal. And as you know, I've, I mean, no one has been more straightforward about giving bad news to the American people than I've been. And so uh, this is a very optimistic thing I'm saying, and I, and I firmly believe it, that we can, we can uh, conquer this virus in the United States. We have a big problem globally, but in the United States. I think we can. Well, I, you know, listen, I, I, found you throughout this whole process to be a voice of reason, sobering, facts-based, but also a voice of reason. And I think, uh, you know, I owe it to you and people like you and uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, et cetera, for telling the truth to people and also helping us conform our behavior to create more safety for our families and even, you know, elderly people in my family. But, but Doc, I'm going to take this, I'm going to cut it and I'm going to send it to about 100 people I know that will not get the coronavirus vaccine. And, you know, listen, I'm not trying to profile here, but they are white and they are Republican. And they've been watching a lot of Fox News and they listen to President Trump and they're not going to take the vaccine. And you and I both know 
that taking that vaccine, and I'll fully disclose everybody, I'm about to get my second dose of the Moderna virus uh, vaccine. Um, you and I both know that that's going to stall our ability to create this herd immunity. So you've got the stage. Give me your best sale. I, you know, you got you got a great gown on. I'm, I'm, I'm loving the doctor's gown and the Baylor logo and everything. You've got the stage, but you got to channel your best salesmanship now. And you've got to convince this, this group of 100 people that I know personally that will not take this vaccine. What are we saying to them today? So, you know, we've been working, I've been working, our group's been working on coronavirus vaccines for the last decade. We make vaccines for lots of tropical and neglected infections, and we adopted a coronavirus vaccine program a decade ago. We showed that the best way to prevent coronavirus infection is to deliver the spike protein to the immune system to create virus neutralizing antibodies in, in your system. We now know that those virus neutralizing antibodies from a vaccine will save your life. Will, will that, will that, vi- will that vaccine hospital. make me sterile, doctor? It um, won't make you sterile. It won't modify your DNA. In fact, we've put out a series of articles now de- debunking all of the fake assertions ranging from that it's going to modify your DNA, creating genetically modified humans to 5G nonsense and, um, and, and the list goes on. What we know is that by getting vaccinated, getting virus neutralizing antibodies, that's the closest thing to a guarantee that you will not uh, go to a hospital or an intensive care unit because of COVID-19. And we know that the only way to get back to a normal quality of life in, in, in the United States is to get just about every adult vaccinated. And if we do that, um, I think the masks can come off. I think the um, we can get back to school, get back to college, get back to ball games, get back to everything else that we like to do. In, in 2000, I think that's brilliant. And I'm going to cut that and I'm going to try to reach as many people with that as possible. In 2012, uh, David Quammen wrote a book called Spillover. Uh, he talked about the animal population and the human population running into each other now as the population of humans is spilling over into the animal population, seven plus billion of us, uh, and it causing these transfers, these zoological or zootropic transfers of viruses from mammals to humans. Um, What is your opinion of that? More of that going to happen in our future? And are these mRNA vaccines, can they be reprogrammed to help prevent the next big pandemic? Yeah, a, a lot to unpack there. Well, first of all, what's happened now for the first time, more people live in urban areas than rural areas. That's been a trend that's been accelerating over the last decade. So if you project decades out, you know, the human race is going to live in a series of megacities, massive uh, urban structures that outstrip um, water and sanitation. And, you know, we're looking at a megacity is a city over 10 million people. So Kinshasa and, and Lagos and Dhaka and Bangladesh, Fortaleza, these are going to be massive cities and they're going to encroach upon forested areas where bats live. And we know bats uh, not only uh, are, are natural reservoirs of coronaviruses, but also Ebola virus and Nipah virus. So we should expect more of this kind of contact going on and and particularly in in areas where there's enormous amount of crowding that outstrips infrastructure that's just can ignite 
uh, a virus uh, along one of these big mega cities. So unfortunately, this is going to be a new reality, and we now need to take steps globally uh, in order to get ready for this. As a, so what I've been saying is we've had SARS in 2003, MERS in 2012. That's when we started getting involved in this, making those vaccines. We've got COVID in 2019. We'll have COVID-26. We'll have COVID-32. And, and we need to get ready for that as well. Um. 500,000 plus deaths in the United States, obviously very tragic. And some of those, as we both know, could have been avoided had we had better unified theory around public health and safety and obviously a bigger outpush on the vaccines. We also both know that President Trump and his family took the vaccine but didn't want to tell people about it because they prey on these people's conspiracy theories and their anti-vaxxing situation. Um what would you say to President Biden, who is now at the helm? How do we cleanse ourselves of this, this disinformation? What do we do from a public perspective, a private perspective, to try to get this right going forward? Well, let me tell you. Well, first of all, I, I would like to say, you know, he is responsive to the scientific community or has been. And, I, and I've worked with President Biden when he was a senator around neglected tropical disease legislation, very committed to things like this. And he, um, you know, he came out right after the inauguration saying he was going to vaccinate 100 million people in 100 days and said, we're going to fully vaccinate the American people by the fall. But those of us in the scientific community saw that B117 variant and we said, "Uh oh, this isn't going to work. He's got to do this by late in the spring. And they responded. You know, they they were they were responsive, and they figured out how to, how to do that. So, I have to tell you, that's one of the more impressive things I've seen in terms of responding to a pandemic threat by by an entity in the U.S. government. What what he has to do now, which so far I haven't really seen, maybe there are things going on behind the scenes, is reaching out to the other side, reaching across the aisle. And I know he's capable of it. He's had a great great track record of doing it. But um, this, this vaccine resistance, this anti-science component of the Republican Party is real. And as I say, in the past, it was just, you know, from the, you know, pretty extreme people down here in Texas and Oklahoma under health freedom, medical freedom. It's mainstream in the Republican Party right now. You have multiple members of Congress now publicly stating they're not going to get vaccinated. And, and we've got to fix this and we have to fix it soon because it's eroding the strength of our country. I mean, uh, I, I'm a believer that the greatness of our nation is built on a lot of things. And one of them is the greatness of our research institutions and universities. I mean, why do, why do people love America? It's, and that's a major reason. And this is, you know, our greatest victories were achieved through science, whether it's defeating Nazism and fascism in World War II or the Cold War or putting humans on the moon. Um, we have always been a science-driven country for the last hundred years, and and to get away from that is so self-defeating. And and this means reaching out to the Republicans. And, and I'm doing my part. I well, first of all, we had a lot of vaccine hesitancy among African American groups, so I started going on talk radio shows and podcasts that reach Black and Brown communities. And now I've made it known, and I've been doing it, going on conservative news outlets. I mean trying to get back on Fox. I was on for a while and then I, then I was off trying to get back on Fox. And even I did, I was on Newsmax. I was on a daily caller and we have to do this in order to, 
you know, solve this problem. And I think we can, but it's going to take a lot of work. There's a lot of dug in people right now. Yeah. And, but, you know, and it's also has spilled over, frankly, to continue to use that word into election fraud. We had the secretaries of state of Michigan and the secretary of state of Georgia on our, our series here to talk about the accuracy of that election. Yet there's 40 or 50 million people think that it's a fraudulent election. So we, we have a fever going on in the country right now of disinformation. And that's why people like you, sir, are national heroes because you're willing to brave that fight despite the attacks on your personhood and who you are. Um, my- you know, I, w- I always say, you know, the Republican Party was never anti-science, right? I mean, the National Academy of Sciences was formed under Abraham Lincoln. Eisenhower launched NASA. George W. Bush launched PEPFAR. You know, it was never this way before. And so, at, and I try to educate people about that to say, you know, this these are not the droids you're looking for. I don't know why you're going in this direction when it's so obviously self-defeating and scary and, and, a, and, and, a, and a security threat for the country. This is as great a homeland security threat as anything we're facing. So I, I have a theory about this, sir. Not that you want to hear my theories, but I, I do believe that there's economic desperation in the land. Uh, there's a very large group of people that don't feel the aspirational arc of America that perhaps our generation and our parents felt and a result of which they're pointing fingers and they're looking to conspiracy and they're looking to breed this disinformation. It helps almost assuage where they're going directionally. I think we've got to provide more jobs, more opportunity, more real income. I totally in, agree. In crisis, I mean, it's, you know? it's become tribal. And, and yes. all I'm trying to do now is, is, is say to the tribe, this is not the one you want. Get, get right. Don't you know, pick this get, fight. Get get rid of get rid of the anti science. It's or, it's not going to help. Right, because obviously science is our future and will lead to more prosperity. I've got the erstwhile millennial that needs to ask questions. If we don't bring him in, Doc, the ratings don't. Apparently, you know, he's very very popular. This guy. I mean, he gets he gets fan mail and all kinds of different stuff. Uh, but I have one last question before we bring in Mr. Darcy. And that's related to the accusations going on uh, in the Wuhan laboratory and the origination of COVID-19. I was wondering if you could uh, opine on those theories. What's your opinion there, if you have one? And, and former CDC director Redfield just came out with a, an op-ed basically expressing his opinion that it did originate from the lab in Wuhan. What's your opinion there, sir, if you have one? Well, you know, it's it's not impossible. Well, one of the things I've said is, you know, China's always been the perfect mixing bowl for zoonotic viruses because I've, we used to do a lot of work in China. We, we kept a lab in China and Shanghai for many years. And you see it in the out, outdoor markets. You know, it's this perfect mixing bowl of ducks and pigs and chickens. And and it all comes together in, in contact with with humans, and that's why we see all of the avian flus, porcine flus, come out of China. That's why you see saw SARS arise out of China. So the point was, there was never a reason to invoke human origin or man-made origins uh, for this for this virus. So it's not impossible. I I just never saw the the urgency to to focus on it because we know that that China is a place that we do active virus surveillance for because of it's a vulnerable, vulnerable area. So it's, it is possible. Um, I think proving it is going to be really tough, you know, trying to get a hold of uh, an email chain or uh, 
or a smoking gun in terms of record, but it's, you know, I've been talking to a number of people uh, in, in law enforcement and, and, else, and other branches of the government uh, last year about the possibility. And that's what I've said. Yes, it's possible, but I don't know that you need to, 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 uh, to focus on it. And because uh, there's a lot of, there are a hundred other reasons why that coronavirus could have arisen out of China. John Dorsey, go ahead. All right. So you talked about how in the U.S. we're on a path, and we were talking about this before we went live, on a path. There was an op-ed written recently or an article written recently in the New York Times about how the current dilemma facing the Biden administration is what to do with the oversupply of vaccines, which is obviously a a high-class problem to have when six months ago or nine months ago, we didn't know what the timeline was going to be for even developing a vaccine. So it's promising the arc of vaccinations in the U.S. is relatively promising notwithstanding the anti-vax movement, but around the world, it's a much different picture. So a lot of countries, whether it be in Africa or, or uh, Middle East areas that you covered under the Obama administration or Asia, there are certain countries that, a lot of countries that have zero vaccinations. So how do we look at our role in the world as, as the United States, as a leader around the world, uh, not just for altruistic reasons, but also for selfish reasons in terms of really extin extinguishing this virus uh, in a way that will be lasting you know, for, you know, hopefully the foreseeable future. How do we think about vaccine distribution in a way that, that can help the world and also help us? Well, you know, my op my optimism about the U.S. and to some extent the U.K. and Western Europe is tempered by my profound pessimism for what's going to happen in Africa and Latin America. I mean, look at look at the size of, of the undertaking. There are 1.1 billion people living in sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people in Latin America, you're talking so roughly almost 2 billion people, two doses of vaccine, that's 4 billion doses of vaccines. Where, where's that going to come from? The big picture problem is this, everyone was so focused on the innovation and making and, and using that high technology to make high tech, very good vaccines for the US and Europe is, and nobody really gave thought to simple durable, non-fussy, easy breezy vaccines for Africa and Latin America. And, and that is the reality. So, you know, Pfizer-BioNTech said they're going to donate 230,000 doses of their vaccine to Rwanda. It's great. It's a drop in the bucket. And, and even if the U.S. were to give all of the rest of its supply today, um, it would help a little bit, but it's still mostly a drop in the bucket. We still have not figured out what we're going to do. And it's not because... There wasn't a commitment to equity. Uh, the international policymakers at WHO, Gavi, CEPI, created the COVAX sharing facility. It's well designed in its uh, in its structure, but the vaccines just aren't there because we were so focused on the shiny new toys in terms of the types of vaccines that we're going to make that nobody gave attention to that. So we, you know, early on started making a low cost recombinant protein vaccine for COVID nineteen that now we've licensed to Biological E in Hyderabad. They're like Serum Institute of India, one of the big manufacturers, and they have the capacity to make 1.2 billion doses, which is what they're doing. But it was interesting when I, you know, in 2020, as I was, you know, calling out the disinformation campaign in the White House, I was also on the phone trying to raise money because nobody cared about our vaccine because it wasn't a high-tech cool vaccine. It was something that it's the same technology you use as the hepatitis B vaccine that's been given 
before decades. And we did. We raised around four or five million dollars privately, um, including from Tito's Vodka. So if you um, and uh, the Clayberg Foundation and JPB Foundation. So if you order a cocktail tonight and it has vodka in it, it's got to be Tito's. Uh, my my mother-in-law is gonna my mother-in-law is gonna take care of that herself uh, tonight. So so Tito's is well supported in my household. Trust me. All right. Well, well, good. And um, but you know, certainly and, and, gra- and his grandmother-in-law too, I might add. But <laughs> if, let's keep going. If Bacardi if Bacardi was involved in uh, in the vaccine distribution, then that would be covered by my grandmother-in-law. But well. well well, yeah, we're, 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 cer- we're certainly open to hear from Bacardi. Yeah, so. well, her diet, and just so you know, and I want everybody to know this, is Diet Coke and Bacardi seems to be going very well for her <laughs> at age 83 and counting. Go ahead. And, and this yeah, is, that. I don't want to waste too much time on this, but speaking of her, she's 82 years old. Her husband got COVID, thankfully, survived it after a tough couple of weeks, but she slept in bed with him every night that he had COVID-19, never got it never got infected. It was the most bizarre thing that we couldn't figure out what was going on. It just goes to show you the, the weirdness of this disease. It, it um, really, for, for so many reasons, it's so odd. So the point is, um, and so in terms of what the Biden administration should do with the excess is they should provide it to the COVAX facility and, and let them distribute the vaccine. What I prefer not happen is to, for, the, for the Biden administration to do what the Russians and the Chinese have been doing which is using their vaccine as a bargaining chip in a very transactional way, making one-on-one deals with countries um, uh, in, in what's now being called vaccinationalism. Uh, you know, we've got a good COVAX sharing facility. If they're going to provide vaccine, don't use it as a as an instrument of foreign policy. Use it use it as uh, to to provide for the equity mechanism that's been set up. And I think that's probably something like that will happen. But again, it's still not enough. Um, I'm really worried. Um, And now with that B1351 variant, the South African variant going up from South Africa to Mozambique, Malawi, Tanzania, I'm worried it's going to destabilize the African continent. You've got the P1 variant coming out of Brazil. That could do the same. This this could be a real uh, as terrible as things have been. This could be even a uh, even even a even more concerning humanitarian catastrophe. And so I hope our vaccine can make a difference. Um, and I, and I worry about the bad press around the AstraZeneca vaccine because that was one of the other workhorse vaccines that we were counting on for low and middle income countries. So the this could be the next phase, the next crisis of the pandemic, the US, UK, Europe looks after itself and the rest of the world suffers dramatically. Are you worried actually about the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine at all? Or do you think it's purely something that, you know, the PR has gotten out of control and, and it's going to damage uh, pandemic response as a result? Well, you know, it's it's a race to the bottom to say who was a worst who was the worst public health communicator? Was it the White House Coronavirus Task Force in 2020, or was it, or was it AstraZeneca? Um, they certainly have not done themselves any favor. But the individual European countries made a lot of mistakes too. I mean, Germany, the Paul Ehrlich Institute set out such a damning press release uh, uh, the, a, a day before the European Medicine Agency said it's safe to use, and so this creates a lot of confusion. And we have to remember this anti-vaccine, anti-science empire has deeply infiltrated the low and middle income countries. It's in India, it's in Africa, it's in Latin America. So we're going to get a lot of people who will die refusing um, COVID vaccines in Africa and, 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 and the Americas. And 
So this is going to be a huge issue. Um, in terms of the vaccines, are you worried about their ability to uh, inoculate against these variants? How concerned should we be generally about the variants and you know, not just the fact that they're more contagious, but you know, their potential resistance to treatments that we've developed so far? So all of the vaccines work equally well, it looks like, against the B117 variant, which is the dominant one now in the U.S., and it'll be dominant for the foreseeable future. Down the line, we may see a rise in that P1 from Brazil or B1351 from South Africa. It's here, but it seems to be outcompeted by the, the B117 variant from the UK. As we get this under control, it might become a problem later on. So I'm already giving a heads up to people. Don't be surprised if you have to get a third dose of your Moderna or Pfizer vaccine or a second dose of the J&J vaccine either later on this year or next year. And that boost may be slightly reconfigured to target those particular variants. I don't think we're going to need to get vaccinated every year like, like flu, but anticipate at least, an, at least one additional boost. Yeah, that, that was sort of my next question. You know, I actually had COVID myself in early December. I got the first dose of the Moderna vaccine a couple of days ago, and it knocked me out for 24 hours. It was sort of the classic COVID symptoms. And so it's just... I was curious about, you know, revaccination, whether it's going to be like the flu, but you sort of answered that. Uh, do you anticipate yeah. well, that? Well, re remember, if you've gotten COVID and recovered, that's almost like your first dose of vaccination. Yeah, exactly. For your first immunization. And some people, um, unfortunately, uh, don't handle the second immunization as well. So, Anthony, if you get vaccinated today, this afternoon, don't make big plans uh, for the next 24 yeah, no, hours. Five, so. five, 5 p.m. today. And... Uh, you know, my wife had what was COVID arm, which I'm sure you've heard of, right? It was one percent of the people. Her arm grew up, you know, like a bee sting. Um, but like she always says, it's better than the alternative. And I think that's the thing that's we right. have to tell people: right. uh, what you're doing is priming the immune system. You're you're allowing the immune system to recognize the virus and respond to it and kill it before it starts to wreak havoc on your system and causes an overreaction potential blood clotting, all the other issues. Remember, it'll save your life. And uh, and that's the only, it's not, yeah, I, I, on social, you know how social media is, I use the word guarantee and people jumped on me for that, but it's about as close to a guarantee as you can have that you won't die from COVID uh, if, you get, if you get fully vaccinated. Where do you think we are? I have young kids, Anthony has young kids. Where do you think we are in terms of the, the research process around vaccinations for adolescents and children? And when do you think we'll have some finality on, on knowing uh, what the best course of action is? Well, today or last night, Rutgers University announced they're going to require vaccinations uh, for their college kids. And I think all the other colleges will follow suit. About half a million college kids got infected uh, last year. And um, there were 100 deaths on college campuses, a lot of that from staff. So I think it's very reasonable because we'll have the vaccines here for all universities, college campuses, especially for those living in the dorms to require vaccination. I also think we may have the data by the fall to immunize adolescents uh, and 12, say 10 or 12 to 16 to 18. And, and that will make junior high schools, high schools, very safe places of teacher staff and the, the kids are vaccinated. I think for the little kids, we're probably a little further out, maybe by next year, 
um, we'll have that data maybe sooner, but I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be till next year. And then some decision will be made how uh, how far down an age group you go. Uh, you know, maybe this would be given something like a measles vaccine about one year of age. And the reason I say that if you're vaccinating pregnant women, now it looks like pregnant women will have antibodies on board and that will transfer to the placenta and fetus and protect newborn babies for a period of time, but it may limit vaccine effectiveness in the first six months of life. So I'm guessing it may, could over time, projecting way out in the future, could be given almost like a, a preschool or measles vaccine. Right. So, and my wife is pregnant. We're ha having another child. I'm going to be breaking this news to some of my friends who maybe watch Salt Talks, but she got vaccinated uh, at the urging of our doctor and, and fortunately didn't have you know the same type of reaction I did to the first shot. Not that I am saying in well, any shape or form well, that I regret well, getting vaccinated. Well, first, well, first of all, Mazel Tov. It's great <laughs> that she's got vaccinated. The, um, you know, the pregnant women have not done well with this virus. Very high rates of uh, hospitalization, ICU admissions, much higher than non-pregnant women of the same age and, and a lot of deaths, unfortunately. So even though we don't have all the I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of safety and efficacy data, um, there's now new data coming out about that, that it works really well in pregnant women. Um, we're still finishing all the safety studies, but the risk of what happens if you're pregnant and getting COVID, especially now with the B117 variant is so concerning that most of us are recommending go ahead and get vaccinated. And, um, and now the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is saying getting, get vaccinated and the Maternal Fetal Medicine Society is saying get vaccinated. So you did the right thing. All right. Well, it's good to hear from you for sure. Last question I have. Your book is about preparing for the next pandemic. So obviously we're, we're learning a lot from the, you know, in some ways failed response and in some ways the response as it relates to vaccine development has been very encouraging. Do you think we're more prepared now for the big one? You know, it's it's hard to even say that that we got lucky in any way uh, with COVID because you have in the U.S. more than half a million people dead and and others you know sort of wounded from the vaccine as well as many others around the world. But this wasn't sort of the ultra deadly type of virus that could wipe out large parts of the human population. Do you think we've learned enough from this? You know, this pandemic that the time uh, that maybe one that's more that's deadly comes question, around that we're going to be ready for it. Well, this has been a tough virus because it's had this Janus face, this two-face. On the one hand, you had people going into ICUs and losing their lives. On the other hand, you had at least half the individuals with no symptoms and shedding a lot of virus in their nose and mouth and walk, going into bars and and public venues, and that's what made it so complicated. And I, you know, the way I respond to that is with each pandemic, we've learned something and we have improved infrastructure. So after SARS... In 2003, we had international health regulations. 2005, with after H1N1 pandemic flu in 2009, we built the global health security agenda and 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 uh, and put in new infrastructure for monitoring flu. And then after Ebola in 2014 at Davos, CEPI was created, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. So we do learn from epidemics. I think the things that a few things have to happen for this one. After this one, one. We need greater involvement of the G20 countries where we still focus too much on the US, UK, some of the Western European countries and the country known as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's, it's, it's not enough. We've got to get full involved. We somehow have to figure out a way to get China on board, Russia on board, 
um, Japan more on board, uh, you know, Indonesia, all the Brazil, all the G20 nations. That's got to be a priority to G20 summit to work together. We have to build capacity for making vaccines. Right now, no vaccines are made on the African continent. Barely anything's made in Latin America. Nothing is in the Middle East. So building that infrastructure is going to be really important. I'm having a number of discussions about that. And lastly, we've got to defeat anti-science. And for that, I've been pushing hard on the Biden administration. I don't know if they'll do it to create an interagency task force to really decide what they're going, how they're going to conquer this, recognize how deadly a threat this is. And it means not only bringing in the usual suspects, the health and human services agencies, but they're going to have to bring in uh, commerce and justice department. They're going to have to bring in state department to do something about the Russian system of weaponized health communication. Uh, and I'd like to see that done at the United Nations level as well, a, a, bringing all the UN agencies to tackle this, because I see it as a, as I've said at, this, at the beginning of the program, I said, I see this as a big a threat as nuclear proliferation or terrorism. It's, and arguably it's killed more people than those two things combined right now. And, uh, and, yep. and yet there seems to be very little political will to want to do anything about it. And so far I'm sort of the, the lone person rattling the cage on this one that, that, just be, and maybe it's maybe I'm overreacting just because I've had the been so targeted by them for decades. I've lost my perspective, but uh, I, I see this as something very serious we need to confront. Yeah, I mean, people in their mind they they get worried about things like uh, foreign terrorism and other things, but this is much more pernicious. And if you look at loss of life and and damage to public health, this is much greater. Uh, but it just doesn't crystallize in people's mind the same way. Yeah, I still ha I still haven't found a, a good way to talk about it because if I if you see if I start to go on long enough I start talking about QAnon and neo Nazi groups and <laughs> and Putin and I start myself sounding like someone who's throw, who throws things at the TV at night. So try, I need to find a, I mean you know if you listen to me long enough you kind of understand it and 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 start to agree. But I, I've got to figure out a way to say it in a more elegant way. Well, we don't blame you given the fact that you've been labeled the you know, the OG vaccine king or public enemy number one by the OG, 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 OG villain, OG, OG villain. OK, OG villain. We'll leave it with that. It's great to have the OG villain on Salt Talks. Anthony, you have a final word for Dr. Hotez before we let him off? You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a fanboy doctor, but I have an enormous amount of respect for you because when you're in the public eye and, you know, I've been rolled on a few times, you know, when I got fired from the White House, I got rolled in bro broken glass by the nation's comedian. It was, a, it was a, it's a brutal time uh, for your family and you're out there every day and you're taking buckshot every day. So for those reasons, I see you as a national hero uh, and a global hero in this fight against the disinformation. And so it's a, once again, a public service announcement from the salt talks and all of us here, please get yourself vaccinated. The vaccines are safe. They will protect you and your family. They'll protect your loved ones, particularly your children. You're providing them a shield until we can get a vaccine up and running for them. And so if I got any of that wrong, Doc, let me know. But uh, that's yeah, our that message. Was, and, that was brilliant. That was brilliant, Anthony. You're a great public health communicator. We need more, we need and, more of you out there. So, And we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us. And I hope we can invite you back. Uh, and the title of the book is Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy, in a time of anti-science. And so I encourage people to read that book. 
and share it with people that are reluctant to get the COVID-19 vaccine from one of the providers. And, and, and sir, thank you again for being on with us. Thank you. It was a real honor and enjoyed speaking with both of you. It's been great. Thank you, Dr. Hotez, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk. You know, again, a big part of this battle is educating people. Uh, so please spread the word about this SALT Talk in particular. It's an important public service announcement. You know, both Anthony and I have gotten the vaccine. Dr. Hotez has gotten the vaccine. My pregnant wife has gotten the vaccine. Uh, everyone in my family has gotten the vaccine and, and everybody doing well and, and feeling a huge burden lifted off them mentally, which is another issue that's arisen uh, from, from this pandemic is the mental health crisis that's been created by the fact that you know, we can't go out and live relatively normal lives, which getting vaccinated will allow you to do that. But uh, just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks and also on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Please follow us on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And again, please spread the word about these SALT Talks. I say that about every episode because I think every topic we cover is important for its own reason, but none more important than this one. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here soon again on SALT Talks.